Then. This morning's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 13, verse 53, to chapter 14, verse 12. It can be found starting on page 819 in the Bible under your seat. Matthew chapter 13, verse 53, to Matthew chapter 14, verse 12. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. At the same time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. And he sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus, This is the word of the Lord. Come on up, buddy. Hey, everybody. My name is Mike. I'm one of the elders here at Trinity. So here at Trinity, we take the Bible seriously. We take theology seriously. We take the church seriously. And so we also take it seriously when somebody is on the path towards sort of setting aside their life occupation to serve the church um, through, through theology or through the ministry of the pastorate. Aaron is one of those guys. Uh, This is Aaron Pendergrass. He's a student at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. We have the benefit of being very close to a tremendous seminary. And so we want to be a part of Aaron's training. We want to be a support to him and an encouragement to him as he pursues this this very serious um, calling and occupation. So uh, today we have the benefit of listening to him preach. 
Before he begins, I just want to, to pray for him and bless him and, uh, and also thank him for, for being a part of our body. Many of you guys know that, that Aaron is probably a genius. He's a brilliant dude, but he's also somebody who, he's somebody who feels what he thinks as well. Um, it's, it's common when you're walking through the se- I, I, I went to the same seminary that, that Aaron's going to now, and there are many brains on sticks, right? Lots of guys whose, whose minds are disconnected from their hearts, and Aaron is not one of those people. Uh, he's not only a, a man who understands the content of the scripture, but he has the, the character of, of a future elder and a minister of the word, and so we're, we're blessed to have him here. I'd like to pray for him as he, he begins. Lord Jesus, I, I thank you for for Aaron and uh, the friend he is to me and the friend he is to many of us here at, at Trinity. I pray, Lord, that as he brings the word, that, um, that you would empower his speech, that, that, the, that your word would be alive to us through Aaron today, and that our ears would be attentive to, to hear what it is that you have for us through um, what is a, a, a dark and confusing passage. And I, I pray that, that through Aaron you'd bring clarity. And, uh, and I do pray, Lord, that you would allow us to be a support and encouragement to him as he walks this path toward um, the pastorate or the academy or, or whatever um, direction he chooses in the end by which to serve your people. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Can everybody hear me okay? Thank you. Thank you for that kind introduction, Mike, and thank you for praying for me. I'm very appreciative of that. And you're probably wondering why I did the unpardonable sin on St. Patrick's Day. I'm not wearing any green. I give you full permission to pinch me after service if you so desire. So in recent weeks on our series of the kingdom, we've been listening to the parables of Jesus. And as Mike have said, our preconceptions or what we think about the kingdom affect the way we understand what is being taught in parables. Those that do not grasp the secrets of the kingdom necessarily find the kingdom offensive. Today, we're going to see a visual example of the parable of the sower in action. Or, as I would like to put it, a tale of two kingdoms. Jesus goes to his hometown of Nazareth, and he doesn't receive the warm homecoming that we would expect a famous person to get. Uh, Jesus' disciples have just heard and understood the message of Jesus' parables, but this audience does not. The soil of this people is not receptive toward the kingdom. This story shows us the unfortunate perception that people have of the kingdom. And for for my own nerves and for my own clarity, I'm just going to pray again. If you guys would join me, that would be very appreciated. Dear Father, this is a very, very hard passage. Father, I ask that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit and you would fill me with boldness and you would fill me with power. Lord, I ask that you would come upon me to be able to proclaim your truth and to be unapologetic in it. I ask that you would just give me boldness, that you would anoint my words, that you would use this, 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 this lowly earthen vessel, this jar of clay. I ask that your glory would just shine through this, uh, this jar of clay. I ask, Lord, that your name would be put on display today and you would help me be able to Help your church be the model family, that, that you would use me to teach them how to cope with rejection and endure irrational persecution, Lord. I ask, Lord, that, uh, that the word that's being proclaimed today would sanctify them. I ask, Lord, that it would lead them into all truth. I ask, Lord, that the soil of this people 
would, would, would be receptive toward your, your, the words of your kingdom. Ask that we would not be like the Nazarenes and we see and we almost get there and we reject it. Lord, help me today. I ask you these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So the title of my sermon is The Kingdom Faces Opposition. And starting in verses 53 through 57, my first point I would like to draw out of this passage is the kingdom faces rejection. When Jesus finished these parables, he departed from there. When he came to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? So Jesus is teaching them in the synagogue. This is probably the synagogue where Jesus grew up in as a boy. As we've seen in the message of Scripture, when the kingdom of God is proclaimed, it always triggers a response. In fact, it demands a response. It either hardens its hearers or its hearers respond to the gracious call that it gives. As we've seen in verses 11 through 15 in past weeks, Jesus says that these people would keep on hearing and not understand, that they would listen and they would not be able to perceive the heart and the message of the kingdom. We see in this passage these people are amazed at the way Jesus teaches. He taught with one that had authority, unlike the scribes and the Pharisees and the way they taught in that day and age. They say, look at his wisdom. Where did this man get this wisdom? Where did this man get these mighty works? They recognized the works were mighty, but yet they suppressed the wonder by their own experience. For the Nazarenes, they expected the kingdom to come through natural ability. They start asking leading questions, questions that they've already decided the answer is yes to in their minds. Their familiarity robs them from being able to see the miracle. Is this not the carpenter's son? Some people have said by the use of uh, the word the here that it could have implied that Joseph was the only carpenter in the town. Now, there is archaeological evidence that suggests that Nazareth was a small town of probably about 486 people. Uh, But I wouldn't go so far to say that Joseph was the only carpenter of that town. But uh, I think I would understand this to mean that he was the token carpenter of that town. These people know Jesus' vocational history. They might be rejecting him because it was the duty of that day and age to, to follow in the tradition and in the vocation of your father. And Jesus does not do this. Is this not his mother Mary? And are not his brothers James, Judas, or Jude, the New Testament writer? Simon and Joseph are not his sisters with us. The town probably knows the story of the miraculous birth of Jesus. And they're probably filled with skepticism. They probably have their doubts. Here is one of the few passages that mention Jesus had sisters. Now, in the Roman Catholic position of this passage, they would understand this to mean Jesus' male and female cousins. But I don't think that's the plain sense of this reading. And his sisters are probably not mentioned like James and Jude because they were already married and they never came to faith, unlike James and Jude, as we see in the New Testament. It also could be because women in this society were not named unless they were very influential. However, we see that they are with them, so they're probably sitting in the synagogue in the congregation with them. In John chapter 7, verse 5, we see that not even Jesus' brothers believed him. 
So why are the town folk looking at Jesus' traits, his abilities, and his characteristics? They say, where did this man get all these things? They know that scribes or rabbis haven't trained him. And they are taken offense by this. Literally, the word mentioned here is they're scandalized by this. This word conveys a sense of deep rejection, a sin, and a shunning, a total, utter rejection of the kingdom. For them, they don't think the kingdom ought to come that way. For them, that's not how the kingdom comes. The Nazarenes are unlike the Pharisees that we've seen in the passage before. The Pharisees are able to craft and fabricate a a brilliant theological argument against Jesus' ministry and go, well, he's casting out these demons by the ruler of demons. That's probably going to be a story that really catches on. But these people, they, 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 they can't fabricate that sort of argument. These people only look at his family for argumentation. The kingdom came in a form they didn't expect. They despised the humility of God's word. They focused on Jesus' earthly identity rather than his heavenly identity. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? We know this guy. How then does he say, I have come down from heaven, as we see in John 6.42? We must remember that the kingdom doesn't come the way that we expect it to. Jesus is rejected by his own people, his own hometown, and his own family. John 1.11 says, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. God himself knows what it's like to be misunderstood and rejected. Jesus knows the struggle to those in this congregation that have the pain and hardship among families on behalf of the gospel. He knows that it can be harder to go across the living room than across the world for his sake many times. He knows what it's like to be dismissed by your own family. So, we have to ask the question, how ought we to deal with rejection from our own family? We embrace it and we look to Christ, for our home is in him. Mark 10, 29-30 says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now and this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. The church is the true family of God. It is that inheritance now, the brothers and sisters and mothers and children that we receive on account of the gospel. A spiritual family is deeper than any bloodline ever could be. A spiritual relation runs deeper, one that is united by the veins of Christ and the veins of ancestry. If anyone in this congregation knows the stories and hardships of family among this body, I beg and urge you to be aware and to come around those people as the true family of God. Christ and the church are our inheritance. In Christ's familial suffering, I find hope in my own life as I've experienced some forms of rejection in my own hometown and among my own family. Let me tell you a story. One time I went to go fill in for a pastor at a church in... uh, It's called First Baptist Church in Medina, Tennessee. It's a really small town. Probably about 3,000 people live there. Uh, The pastor wanted to take his family to Disney World on vacation, but the person he was going to have come and fill in his pulpit could not make it. And I said, I can preach for you. 
if you want me to, so you can take your family on vacation. And he said, you would do that for me, Aaron? I said, yeah, I would do that for you. And he said, okay. Um, so I, I prepared the sermon, and as I got ready to preach that Sunday, I went in the pastor's office, and I had the lights off, and I was in there, and I was praying and preparing uh, as I was getting ready to preach. And one of the deacons of the church came outside the office door, and he didn't know I was in there. And he starts talking to one of the other congregation members. And they see my name in the, in the program, Aaron Pendergrass. And the deacon knew me from childhood and knew the kind of church that I grew up in. The church I grew up in did not believe in the Trinity, and they did not believe in original sin. So this, this, this man had doubts, and he thought I was still the same way. He read the name Aaron Pendergrass. Hmm, isn't this one of those love and truth guys? That was the name of the church I was at. And then the other guy said to him, no, 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 he's not like that anymore. The pastor wouldn't, like, let him preach if he was still like that. And he said, okay, we'll see. (laughs) And he didn't know I heard all of this outside of the office while I was praying. And (laughs) I started, like, feeling a plethora of emotions come on me at that moment. I felt a little, a little scared <laughs> and thought, oh no, <laughs> these, these people still have a perception of me that I, I, I don't want. I was not received by my own hometown people. Yet again, when I told my father when I was in high school how I was feeling the call to be a pastor and wanted to go to college to study to be a pastor, he said, you know that's not going to make you any money. You should, uh, you should go into computer programming or you should be a nurse. That's what's really going to make you money. And I was like, Dad, I, I don't want to make money. That's not why I'm in this business. I want to help God's people. He didn't understand. And he tried to talk me out of going into ministry for years. Or another time, I was raising money to go to, go to India. I was raising support. And I was feeling the Lord prompting my heart to go overseas for an internship. I told my family that really had supported the call of God in my life, my mother's side of the family. And when I told them I wanted to go to India, right after I'd just been affirmed by my friends and by my pastor, they looked at me and they said, good luck with that. And that really hurt me with the people the way I expected them to react, reacted differently. So, Christ's suffering, his familial suffering, gives me hope. It it teaches me that my home and my honor is identified with the king of the kingdom. I want to thank Trinity Community Church for being that home for me. You guys are a church that has made my problems your own, and I'm forever grateful for it. You guys have been hospitable to me. Some of you have let me do laundry at your house when my laundry machines were broken. You guys have provided for my physical needs. You have fed me when sometimes I was wondering where my next meal was coming from. You have grieved with me in the loss of friends and family this past year. And you guys have even provided for me financially when I wondered how I was going to pay my rent this summer. Thank you for being that true family of God to me. My second point, verse 58. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. The kingdom faces unbelief. In Mark's version of the story, in Mark chapter 6, we read, Jesus 
could not do any mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Now, in my past understanding of this verse, I was taught this verse meant that if we don't have enough faith, we couldn't receive things from God. Some of you in this room might have been hurt when you were recovering in hospitals or praying for loved ones because you were told that your prayers were not answered and God did not heal because of your lack of faith. I just want to stop and say, I apologize that you experienced that. I'm very sorry you went through that. I changed my mind about this verse when I saw the way it injured my faith and that of others. Now, I think the sort of unbelief that's mentioned here is not one where Jesus is unable to perform a wonder because he's reliant on faith. One of my old professors, Dr. D.A. Carson, explained it this way. The could not is related to Jesus' mission, just as Jesus could not turn stones to bread without violating his mission, so he could do no miracles indiscriminately without turning his mission into a sideshow. The lack of faith of the people was doubtless a source of profound grief and frustration for Jesus, rather than something that stripped him of his power. We see in other instances Jesus isn't relying on faith to do a miracle when he feeds the 5,000, when he calms the storm, when he heals the uh, the demon-possessed men. I think Matthew's did not here correctly interprets Mark's could not. It was not because Jesus was actually impotent in the face of unbelief, but he chose to limit himself in that way. Jesus would not perform miracles to please this audience. The true king's power will not be abused. It will not be manipulated. He will not perform signs to please skeptics and yield to the expectations of their kingdom. He will not live under the fear of having a favorable look of his audience, unlike the king we're about to read about. He will not have his hand twisted. So I think the kind of unbelief mentioned here is that which is characteristic of unbelievers, strong opposition and resistance to the gospel. Verses 1 through 5. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead, and therefore mighty works are at work in him. For Herod had laid hold of John, bound him, and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John said to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. When Herod would have put him to death, he feared the crowd, because they counted him as a prophet. So some of you might be reading this verse and you're thinking, What the heck is a tetrarch? So a tetrarch was a governor or a ruler of one of four regions in the Roman Empire. I think this verse also requires some more clarification as well. When we read Herod here, there were actually four different Herods in the Gospels. There's actually six different Herods mentioned in the Bible. Now, Herod the Great, better known as King Herod, is the Herod that's responsible for the mass genocide of Jewish infants in Matthew chapter 2. He died pretty early. He had three sons, Herod Archelaus, Herod Philip. Ever heard the town Caesarea Philippi? Caesar of Philip. That's named after Herod Philip. And Herod Antipas. Now, Archelaus is briefly mentioned in chapter 2, 22, as reigning after his father died. But in this passage, this is Herod Antipas. The Herod that was eaten by worms in Acts chapter 12 was his son, Herod Agrippa I. Now, I don't have time to get into the details about how Herod Antipas was exiled and whatnot, but the Agrippa mentioned in Paul's trial with Felix in Acts 24 and 26 is Herod Agrippa II, the Herod of Matthew 14's grandson. 
My third point here is the kingdom faces dismissal and contempt. Herod heard about the fame of Jesus. However, we see a past event has been plaguing Herod's conscience. We're about to see a flashback of this event. Herod has some superstitious belief about the resurrection in chapter 14, verse 2. He doesn't quite understand it. He thinks Jesus is able to do miracles and supernatural abilities because he's John the Baptist raised from, from the dead. He thinks that John might be coming back to haunt him, in a sense, for what he did. He doesn't know John as Jesus' cousin. Now, here's what happened. Herod sent a warrant for John's arrest, arrested him, and put him in prison because of the prophet's boldness to confront the national leader's sin. Just as we read earlier in verse 57, that a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own town. We see the prophet here as a prophet without honor in his own nation. Jesus has rebuked the Pharisees' ancestors of killing the prophets that came before them. In Jesus' statement, we see a foreshadowing of the fate of John and one that shows the foreshadowing of the fate of Jesus. Israel kills the prophets that are sent to it. Why has Herod arrested John, though? John is a righteous man, and he had an unpopular teaching. Herod thinks he can get away with an affair as the ruler of the nation. He thinks he's not obligated to any moral responsibility. Herod has arrested John because of the slander of his wife. Herod went and married Herod Philip's wife. They had a a love affair. Herod advised Herodias to divorce his brother so he could be with her. And John reacts against that, and he says, it's not lawful for you to have her. Literally, it's not authorized for you to have her. This was an illegitimate divorce. Herod divorced his wife and wooed Herodias and unrightfully took his brother's wife. John is thinking of Leviticus 20.21, which states, If a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. To rob a living brother of his wife is to rob, shame, and despise your brother. And to take something unrightfully that doesn't belong to you. You may think you can do what you want, bub, but you're not the real boss here. Now, what I mean by the kingdom faces dismissal and contempt, I'll give you the definition of contempt. It's the feeling that a person or a thing is beneath consideration, worthless or deserving scorn. This is the way the kingdom of God is even faced today with. A lot of people will look at Christians and you guys will say, and the guys will say, you guys are anti-intellectual. You guys don't actually reason with, uh, with the problems that are happening with the world today. Or you guys are smothering faith on like some butter onto a pan. That's just, that's just feel-good theology. Or they'll say that's the opium of the masses. Guys, we should expect to be dismissed by the society. Just as John's teaching was not held by the national leader, we shouldn't be taken by surprise when people look at us and they hold us in derision. Herod cares about his reputation among the people, as we see in verse 5. And he doesn't want this unpopular low view of himself. But he's afraid of John. He's walking on eggshells. He's afraid of the political actions of his consequences. He wants to keep a good eye for the people. Also, what if John really is a prophet? 
we see Herod as an egocentric man. Verse 6 and 7. Do you like birthdays? Are they fond memories for you? Ever had a birthday where everything went wrong? Let's say the cake was burnt or somebody's hair was caught on fire from the candles. Or the clown coming to blow up the balloons got a flat tire. Your best friend wasn't able to show up. Well, this is a birthday where everything went wrong. (laughs) The wine is flowing, some unwise decisions have been made, and the birthday soon becomes a funeral. Herod's niece, the daughter of his wife's first marriage, Herod Philip's daughter, comes into the banquet hall and dances for Herod and for his men. Now, we aren't quite sure what kind of dancing was happening here, but we can assume it was probably erotic, which is just sickening to think about. Herod is pleased with her performance, and he swears an oath to reward her for the performance. And Mark, he says, I'll give you up to half the kingdom. What kingdom? Herod is so full of himself, he's walking on air. He thinks he's more of a big shot than he really is. Now, This is probably a 12 to 14-year-old girl, and she still has to ask permission for her mother for requests. That's why we see her mother is prompting her to make this sort of decisions. She's not old enough to make her own decision. Verse 8. Being previously prompted by her mother, she said, Give me John the Baptist's head on a platter. Now, why the head on a platter? I've always thought this verse was very strange, and then I realized... That in the Greco-Roman culture, men and women ate in separate banquet halls. So, she wants vengeance for the cruel things John has said about her and her unauthorized romance with Herod. You serve delicacies on a dish, and that's the delicacy she wants. She cannot request that in person because she's in a different banquet hall. She also wants proof of John the Baptist's death, so there's doubt as to whether she can trust her husband's word. Herodias even might have uh, plotted this assassination the entire time. She wants John dead more than Herod. My next point is, the kingdom faces injustice. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his gifts, he commanded it to be given. Now we see two things happening here. We see Herod is afraid of the actions of how how he's going to be seen among the people that are with him. We see Herod as the epitome of a double-minded man. Herod is the epitome of a double-minded man. Herod is a people-pleaser. But also, I was talking to one of my professors that goes to this church, Dr. Stephen Bryan. He gave me some insight when I was talking with him earlier this week about this passage and the oath that Herod makes. The kind of oath that Herod makes seems like the kind of oath that you would make when you would swear by the name of the Lord. It's implied here. And we see that Herod is probably valuing the second command over the fifth command in the Ten Commandments. He's probably thinking, well, I've sworn by the name of the Lord, and if I don't love my neighbor as myself because I made that oath, so be it. Too bad. But I think Herod is more concerned about his perception in front of his guests. He wants to save face and protect his identity. Herod's get to know that they're mentioned in the text, Herod's guests. We can 
We can, we can conclude that he might have contemplated turning back on his oath if he did not have a fixed audience. He makes decisions out of fear. He goes against his conscience. He feels that his hand has been forced to make a decision. He's not wanting to be seen as a weak ruler. So why does Matthew call him a king here in this verse when he said that he was a tetrarch in verse 1? That's what I think. Matthew may be ironically calling Herod king when he's acting the least kingly. You want to be like your father, the great King Herod? Well, here you go. There's your kingdom for you. Guys, Herod bypassed the Roman and Jewish system and refused John the right to have a trial. He killed him in prison. John faced a pitiful death. He's denied of justice. The wicked woman gets what she wants. The disciples of John come and take the body. And bury John to preserve his honor. So I ask again, how ought we to live when the kingdom faces injustice? We remember the kings of this world do not have the final word. There is heinous evil that persists, but it shall be defeated. The true king's power will not be manipulated. It will not be abused. He will not live under the expectations of his audience. We should remember the ways we identify with Christ's suffering. 2 Corinthians two fifteen and 16 says, We're the fragrance of the aroma of Christ, and to some it's the smell of death, and to some it's the smell of life. We can be comforted by Christ's rejection when we follow Christ into his death. Our home and honor is identified with the one who brings in the kingdom. We can take heart because the kingdom is still promised to expand even in the middle of suffering and affliction. We're called to be the true family of God that cares for the needs of those in this church in the world. I want to say to those of you here that cannot relate to the experience of knowing a God that suffered for you and cares about making your problems His, there will be people after the service at the front that will be available to pray with you. Whatever kind of suffering you might be going through, there is God to walk through it with you because He knows and He has walked this path before us and He is walking with us still. Pray with me. Dear Father, I ask that we would remember your kingdom comes in a way we don't expect. I ask, Lord, that we would incline our ear to opportunities that you may be speaking to us when we're not willing to listen. I ask, Lord, that we would learn to see your presence in all things. I ask, Lord, that you would, you would humble our hearts to be able to receive from even children and out of the mouths of babes when they speak truth. I ask, Lord, that we would not think that we've arrived at an age where we think we, we can't be poured into anymore because we know too much and we're old and, and, and those things that people say, those are beneath us. Lord, I ask that you would give us hearts that listen to the people you've placed in our lives and that we would expect even to hear from you through the words that they say. I ask that you would convict our hearts, Lord, that we would not be people pleasers like Herod. I ask, Lord, that uh, we would not be ashamed of the kingdom. We would not be ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God and the salvation of everyone who believes. Lord, work in us. Move in us. I ask you these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.
Hallelujah.